brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrop Radio on time, on target. This show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. By the way, some pretty cool shirts that I assume Jason Kenitzer um, designed, like the mock of the Van Halen Best of logo and the Metallica logo. Some really cool stuff. Um, there's some... There's some stuff in there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items sell out quick, so you really got to act now. For example, uh, we've got a few more Crate Club custom NFW watches left, Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts, and Crate Club fishing spears. But like that tactical pen we have, for example, that's gone. We have no more of those left, so act now. Uh, It's up on its own section on CrateClub.us, or you can go to store.crateclub.us to check it all out. That's store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear you're going to love on Airdrop. Uh, with that, uh, I'm Ian Scotto. Jack Murphy is here. And it is the 65th birthday, as we're recording this today, of uh, James Smokey West, Jim West. Yeah, I talked to Jim this morning. Uh, he's doing good. He's actually meeting with uh, a co-author he's working with, producing a whole series of books. Yeah, which yeah. I you know did say to him, I want to see some of these see the light of day. I've known Jim at this point. I mean, you've known him longer than I have, but it's probably about seven years because I remember him turning yeah. 60, and we've been talking about this book. The book you helped him with is pretty much done, but we just need it out. It must have been like two years ago I told him to shit or get off the <laughs> pot, you know. Um, but it looks like one of these books is going to be out like this week. Yeah, so, well, so he, for according to him... There's the memoir that you helped him out with. There's the fighting book. And now he's doing another book on, like, near-death experiences. That's what he said on the phone to me. Um, And he's probably going to come on next week and talk about it. But I just want to see these come out already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Well, good. No, I'm glad he's coming on the podcast. Yeah, I I love seeing Jim. And, you know, I'm sure we could have him back on when you're here. But you're going to be away next Mm -hmm. week for a little bit. So I'm I'm figuring out what I'm going to do for those. And instead of doing best ofs, I'll have Jim in. I'll have your friend um, Doug Kachigian in. Yeah. And, oh, that's great. Yeah, CJ Woodruff, who's been on the show before, who's a former Marine and big in the fitness world. So I figured them two together Perfect. would make sense. Um, but yeah, that's it. Happy birthday to Jim West. Uh, as I was telling you this past weekend, I had to run a whole bunch of errands. It was actually my mom's 60th. She was celebrating, so we had a big party for her. Um, and I had a lot of time to just listen to things, so I watched the entire Alex Jones deposition <laughs> of the lawyer representing the Sandy Hook families um, suing Alex Jones, which I showed you a little bit of before we recorded. And 
this lawyer really destroys Alex Jones with his own words between the fact that he pretty much created the conspiracy theory of Sandy Hook families the day that it was happening, saying that it looked like a false flag and all this. And, you know, I think the best part, which I showed you, was where he said, well, you know, he was questioning parts of it, but it wasn't in in its entirety a false flag. And then there's the clip of him saying the whole thing is a hoax. Dude, play, play the clip. Yeah, it's awesome. I'd have to. Uh, I mean, it's out. like yeah, you know, something like Sandy Hook isn't something that uh, you know it, you necessarily want to laugh about or, or that you associate no. with comedy. But uh, this segment of the deposition is indeed uh, pretty funny though, that you were showing me a few minutes ago. I'll go back to the one we were watching because that one had. Uh, here we go. I'll be able to find the part that yes. we were. With that same message about Sandy Hook. This is it, yeah, because this is the best. I mean, I don't want to call anything best with Sandy Hook, but it's just amazing how, you know, he um, can't can't gather basically what he said and and hold the story together. Yes. I'll answer your questions, Mr. Jones. You're going to tell me what stage means when you. Here we go. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Okay. By the spring of 2013 or so, Let's say just a few months after the shooting. By that point, you had gone from theory to just straight up telling your audience Sandy Hook was staged and the evidence is overwhelming. Objection is deformed. Correct? But what does staged mean? I, I'm just asking you what you were telling your audience. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm not answering your questions, Mr. Jones. You're going to tell me what staged oh, means when you said it. So what I'm asking you is a few months after the shooting, you had gone from theory to straight up telling your audience... Sandy Hook was staged and the evidence was overwhelming. True or false? But I'm asking you to define what you mean by staged. I'm not asking. I'm not asking for a definition of staged. I don't care what staged means. I'm asking, did you say it? I don't have it in front of me, but they staged Sandy Hook. The evidence is just overwhelming. By the end of 2014, you had personally done intensive research and you concluded it was all fake, correct? Still objection is deformed. The specific areas I was talking about being fake, not in a totality. Can you go ahead and play that for me? Uh, but it took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. I mean, even I couldn't believe it. I knew they jumped on it, used the crisis, hyped it up, but then I did deep research, and my gosh, it just pretty much didn't happen. Yeah, so there, if, if you'd like... There is literally, I think, uh, two and a half plus hours of this if you really want to drive yourself crazy. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed watching because it's just the the amount of uh, stuff that he, I mean, the evidence is right in front of him. We talked about it the other day when we uh, did that podcast with Joe about Oklahoma City. And I mean, Alex is always one of those people. Oklahoma City is an inside job or some sort of conspiracy or government bombed itself. Uh, And it's really interesting how... You know, his ideas have achieved some level of like mainstreaming as far as like otherwise normal people starting to buy off on that shit. Like I, I know one guy who's a uh, a former Marine and he was telling me how guys in his basic training uh, course believe that Sandy Hook is an inside job, despite him telling him how his father, who's a preacher, put those kids in the ground like yeah. it was there for the funerals. And he's like, dude, there's guys like Marines I know who think it's an inside job. And I think part of the uh, mainstreaming of InfoWars and Alex Jones is also the legitimacy of the people he's had on there. I mean, the president has been on InfoWars. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Rand Paul has been on N4s. I believe Ron Paul, Judge Napolitano has been on N4s. Like a lot of credible people. And he puts up strange cats like that guy, Steve Pachenik, who makes a lot of claims. Claims was involved somehow with Aldo Moro. The uh, former Italian prime minister who was killed, um, you know, makes a lot of, you know, odd claims about being a member of the, um, you know, Association of Intelligence Professionals. But he also goes on there on Alex Jones and says that 9-11 was an inside job. It's like it's fucking crazy. Yeah. It's interesting what's going to happen with this, because there is the angle of what is free speech, what is actually a threat to the families and. If you watch this whole thing, the thing that I do, uh, many of us, I think, would agree crosses the line is where he mentions the address of a P.O. box of a nonprofit set up by one of the family members. And he says exactly where it's located. And as the lawyer correctly states, at that point, members of his audience could stake out where this guy gets his mail and do something. And so I, I don't think it's going to be the subject of this particular you know, lawsuit, but there are also some interesting questions about Alex Jones and his relationship with organizations like RT, uh, you know, uh, Russian state-sponsored media, uh, English-language media platform that has now, uh, yeah, they have had to register now under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. That's uh, one thing that happened during the Trump administration. He made a bunch of those people register um, because they're acting on behalf of foreign powers to propagandize the American public. And the question is, how involved is Alex Alex Jones in in that? Um, The Russians, uh, the Russian intelligence apparatus, no doubt sees somebody like Alex as a useful patsy. I mean, that is the perfect vehicle to drive wedges in American society and to get us to all fight each other and hate each other and to distrust our government. I mean, it's okay to have a natural distrust of government, but, you know, saying our government, uh, you know, blew up Oklahoma City and, and flew uh, holographic airplanes into the Twin Towers for a, to conceal a controlled demolition so that they could do, like, this is just like shit that's damaging to public discourse, and it's not true. You know what's interesting, since you mention it, I, I have, you know, like many of us, looked up the conspiracy theories on 9-11. So Alex is not a guy who believes that it was holograms, although what you're saying, there are people who really believe that, including a guy who had some position, I could probably look it up, um, related to economics in the Bush administration, believed it was a hologram that flew into the Twin Towers. I mean, there is that whole organization. And I'll look him up just to fact check here. There's that whole organization. I think it's called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And I mean, there are people who have professional backgrounds in engineering uh, who believe that it was a controlled demolition. I I mean, it's... I I don't even know what to say. I mean, I'm not an expert on... uh, demolition but just my experience in the military i mean it would take fucking dozens and dozens of people weeks and weeks to uh tear through uh you know walls and plant charges against uh you know steel i-beams and so forth in in the towers and like like what like the logic just it, it, it baffles me how anyone could convince themselves that that happened well just to do some fact checking here this is who I'm talking about, uh, chief economist, former chief economist within the Labor Department under the Bush administration. Morgan Reynolds argued that there were no planes used in the attacks. Reynolds claimed that it is physically impossible that the Boeing planes of flights 11 and 175 could have penetrated the steel frames of the towers. And when I click on his name, this is from Wikipedia, just, you know, but um, 
just just I'd have to go through all the sources to actually find the legitimate sources. But um, he is a member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, the group that you're talking about. So, wow. It's uh, yeah. I mean, otherwise, you know, sane, rational people get this stuff into their head. And it's one of those things where. Um, and I know I've talked about this in the past too. I mean, in the Middle East, conspiracy theories are huge, and people think the CIA does everything. Like, they, like if it rains, that people think the CIA did that. And it's one of those things where, okay, there's a little bit of truth that there are these like secret, covert players meddling around in Middle Eastern affairs, right? But a lot of people see that five percent is true. And then they assume everything is true, yeah. right? Uh, that every weirdo conspiracy theory is true. And then it gets into the Illuminati and the Masons and the Jews and all this crazy shit. Reptilians. And, and it's the same thing here in the United States. I mean, yes, our government lies to us sometimes, but people will take that 5% and then just make, oh, well, that means that Sandy Hook was an inside job and 9-11 was an inside job and all this like just zany bullshit. Uh, it, it's really... a. Um, you know, conspiracy theorists are kind of a case study in how people have a difficult time discerning facts from fiction. Um, our, our brains are pattern recognition devices in some ways. And, and Alex plays on that. Alex Jones plays on that. He says, look, this one thing over here, like even in that deposition we were watching, he references Operation Northwoods, which is a plan that a real, it was a real plan that I believe was drafted by the Dulles brothers, which would have been a false flag operation. And uh, it never happened. It never got off the ground. I think JFK shut it down. Uh, but Alex will reference that plan that was never executed as somehow de facto proof that Sandy Hook or 9-11 were inside jobs. It's like, no, bro, that's not how logic works. Like, we don't get to go into the past and cherry pick uh, a proposed plan that was never executed and use that as some sort of weird, uh, quote-unquote, evidence that every mass shooting or terrorist strike is an inside job. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, I... I, I I wonder what's going to happen because, like I said, it does fall under the issues of free speech and even under the harassment of the families thing. For example, you have that um, Westboro Baptist Church that that boycotts soldiers' funerals and all types of disgusting things, but they are covered under the First Amendment to do what they do, and you could certainly say that's harassment of the families. So if they're able to do that, why is Alex not able to put his crazy theories out on the air? And and I am a free speech advocate at the same time, I don't feel it's okay for these families to be harassed. So it's uh, it's a tough call, and, and we'll see what actually happens. And you know, if he loses a lot of money in this, and he's already pretty much been deplatformed by just about everybody, but he still has his website. I mean, for Alex, I mean that's like a that's like a selling point, right, for yeah. him because like I'm the alternative, I'm the I'm the real deal, you know. You yeah, come, come to me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's been doing this stuff for years and years. It's interesting that Sandy Hook finally got him. And, and I think you're right that it's because he probably went after the families specifically, uh, as opposed to some of the other events. But I mean, he, he's been a, any kind of incident that happens. I mean, terrorism, shooting, whatever it is, it's always an inside job. I don't think we've ever seen Alex Jones be like, nope, this is just a Official crazy, story. this is a crazy, <laughs> this is a, this is a crazy person or nope, the government's right. This was a uh, Al Qaeda did this. Yeah. Uh, all right. We have Jeff Kirkham standing by who I am excited to talk to, but I'll get to this very quick email, um, which is kind of more for me because of something that I mentioned. Um, this is from John uh, sent to soft rep.radio at soft 
Hey guys, on episode 293, you talked about the deck of cards workout. Could you explain more? Thank you. So that was when we had Sean Lake on from Bubs Naturals. And I guess I must have mentioned it because I worked out with Brandon at his gym one day, actually, like before I got hired full time. And him and Michael Kalameko from uh, who hosts the show on, on PBS, we did this workout where you would um, do the amount of push-ups for the correspond for the card, the number corresponding on the card. So I looked this up, and it actually is from a uh, SWIC NWC site. So I guess this is kind of common in the Navy, uh, but they they have a few more rules. So it's I didn't know how much you did for the like um, Jack Queen King, and what it says here is the Jack you do eleven, Queen you do twelve, King you do thirteen, Ace you do fourteen. Now, we didn't do this. It says hearts, you do normal push-ups. Diamonds, you do diamond push-ups. Clubs, you do staggered push-ups. Spades, you do wide-arm push-ups. And they did the whole deck. I did not do the whole deck. Uh, and they're you know significantly older than me. However, to you my... You cheated cr- your body, Ian. Well, to my credit, here's the thing. When I do push-ups, I do real, you know, standard form push-ups. And for the most part, honestly, unless you're... Um, I'm trying to think of someone who's, been, you know, Dale Comstock or something. It is pretty fucking hard to do hundreds of like perfect form pushups. So when we first started this workout, I'm doing regular pushups. And then you're kind of doing half ass pushups at a certain point because it equals up to hundreds of pushups that you're doing at once. Uh, but yeah, that was it. And if you want to try it, it's uh, pretty interesting doing the full deck. But uh, personally, I would rather keep my form correct and not be prone to injury and as opposed to doing a full deck of cards with all these pushups. But yeah, that's the, uh, that's the answer to that with that for the first time on the podcast is a guy who has an extremely, um, impressive resume. I have to say an impressive background, uh, Jeff Kirkham, army special forces, 28 years of service and currently a master sergeant, former special agent with the DEA And beyond that, he's the president and inventor with Rats Tourniquet LLC and owner of Readyman LLC, uh, where you're a a military thriller author. Your latest book is The Last Air Force One with Jason Ross, which is on shelves now. I know you also speak several languages. I mean, there's a lot to get into, but very impressive background and, and very excited to have you join us. Hey, thank, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And and then just for the just for the record, I'm retired. I'm I'm not currently a master sergeant anymore. I hung up my spurs a couple of years ago. I, I wasn't sure of that because I must have seen some bios that looked like you were still active duty that might not have been updated. So I wasn't sure to write if you were a veteran or, or active duty. No, it's no, it's okay. But uh, yeah, no, not active. I retired a couple of years ago, and about the time we started spinning up all of these uh, all of these businesses. Yeah, I was familiar with Ready Man, so it's pretty cool. Um, and I, I mean, I guess we can get into all that um, as well. But do you want to talk a little bit about you know going into the military? This is kind of a standard question I ask most of our guests to kind of start at the beginning. You know, what motivated you to join the military and and take the path that you did? Um, you know, that's a great question. I know Murph, you were a you were an SF guy, right? Yeah, I was in uh, fifth group. And then, Ian, were you? No, I'm, I'm strictly a radio guy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Who gets to hang well, out with you guys. Well, I, I mean, Jack will, Jack will appreciate this. So I actually, I joined 19th Group when I was 17 years old out here in Utah. And um, like how I got started is like I, all I ever wanted to do is be in Special Forces. Like ever since the third grade, I wanted to be a Green Beret. And that was, 
you know, that was it. And then that was probably cemented in because I saw like John Wayne and the Green Berets and I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is it. And so, um, I joined when I was 17 and then back then there was no computers. That was 1987. And, um, so my, I, my, uh, recruiter worked the system. So I were, actually went to basic training and then jump school between my junior and senior year of high school. And then, uh, came back as a senior in high school you know, thinking I was a big, bad paratrooper, which we all know is like, man, I didn't know anything, but, (laughs) but, uh, and then I graduated high school two weeks later, boom, I was, uh, went back to 11 Bravo school back at, uh, Benning back then it was, they were called rep 63s. Now they're called 18 x-rays. And, um, so right. in uh the aftermath of uh eagle claw right they they started they were called sf babies back in those days weren't they yes yep i was an sf baby so all i ever knew was was uh special forces and so yeah very much so and and um so i went to infantry school and then graduated the q course in 1989 and then um all through the 90s i was in first special forces group so i was a first group guy and then i i got out and um um, went back to 19th group and that's when I was a special agent with a drug enforcement administration. And then the, um, the war kicked off and I was a team sergeant by that time. And, um, um, so led a team on the invasion of Iraq. And then while I was over there, got, uh, you know, essentially there was a counterterrorist unit that was spinning up. So they, they basically, they said, Hey, we are spinning this unit up. Are you interested? So I said, yep. So I did all the interview and all that process, came home uh, about three months later, came home, basically uh, left DEA and resigned from DEA and then um, headed straight back over. And so I was in that unit for the next 13 years um, where I'd met, you know, some unbelievably outstanding people like Wally that if you've seen his video on Black Rifle Coffee, I've known Wally since 2003, 2004. And a bunch of other guys, a bunch of the Afghans that we all help each other out here in Utah now. So, and then uh, about three, four years ago, we started, you know, several businesses. Um, Evan and I, Evan Hafer and I were in special forces together. And um, so we, you know, that's when Brady Man was spinning up. Rats was already in existence, um, but I pulled it back. I'd licensed it out to a, to a different company and then pulled that back. And then Black Rifle Coffee spun up about that time. And, um, yeah, and as they say, the the rest is history. What was that like? Um, you know, first of all, you must have seen the, the special operations community um, go through a massive transformation from, well, you said you joined in 87, graduated the Q course in 89, going through SF in the 90s, and then seeing everything develop after 9-11 must have been pretty wild. Um, I want to ask you about that, but also, you know, splashing down from military life to, you know, starting these entrepreneurial endeavors, that must've been another big culture shift. It, it definitely, it was. And, and yes, saw the military change. Like when I was at group, um, you know, the, for the first up until we got issued M4s in 19, let's see, that was 1997, 1996, 1997 is when we finally got, you know, so we had old school M16A2s and, um, we were still wearing like the suspenders from Vietnam and, um, you know, the only guys that could do close quarter battle were the SOT teams and the Sephardic teams. And, you know, of course, and then the war kicked off. And I mean, that, that got completely right. blown out of the water and it was like, man, we got to change this. And so, um, 
but yeah, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I ended up going to DEA. And so in DEA, I was on what was called the mobile enforcement team and just had a blast. I was up in Seattle and at, at that time, believe it or not, you know, I had long, I had hair down in the middle of my back and a long beard and, and, uh, was buying heroin from bikers and from, you know, Latin Kings and Asians <laughs> and buying ecstasy and crack and holy shit. And it was, it was a blast and kicked a lot of doors. Um, we we're, you know, at one point we we're doing about a warrant a day there for, in some instances, it was, it was great. It was the SF mission essentially, uh, domestically. So I had a blast. Uh, did, uh, yeah, I was going to ask, did all that experience doing like undercover work and, and human stuff um, play into how you pursued your job in the military as the war on terror kicked off? Because there probably weren't a lot of other guys who had that kind of experience at the time. Well, and that's why, the, I mean, that's essentially that's why I got recruited into the CT unit was because I had a bunch of experience kicking doors and because um, doing, you know, at that time, medical training was very new. Um, you know, they called it combat lifesaver yep. back then. And so I was, you know, I'd been through, I'd been an EMT for 10, 15 years at that time. And I was never a quote, I was never a medic. I was never skill identified as a medic, but they sent me to a bunch of training and then that act on that. So, yeah. So when I got recruited by the, uh, by the CT unit, then that was definitely, you know, they were like, man, you got a ton of experience handling sources and, and, uh, putting together association matrices. And it's like, Hey, are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So that's pretty cool. What year did you end up retiring from active duty? This was at 16, I think 2016, I think. So I was, I was, uh, went back to the guard and I actually ended up retiring out of the guard out here at 19th group. So I had a very non-typical, um, military career cause I was guard and then active and the guard and then active and bouncing around and stuff. Always, you know, essentially looking for, you know, looking for the mission if I could describe right, it right. in one, in one term. And, uh, did, when you were kind of getting to that point where you were thinking about retirement, I mean, did you have a plan in place? Was there an idea of what you wanted to go into or <laughs> was it <laughs> as many of us, you know, my, I, I did the stereotypical thing and played video games in my mom's basement the first month after I got out of the army. Yeah. You know, it's funny is, um, I had, I had, uh, I'd written two books on leadership for, you know, for military planning for small unit leaders. Um, at, at that point they're my first two books that I'd written. And then, um, so to answer your question that I have a plan, uh, I mean, n no, I was, I was kind of doing the, you know, not to bash on seals, but I was kind of doing the Navy seal thing. I would figure it out on the ground, you know, and, um, and, and Evan and I basically, you know, came here and Evan lived in my basement of my house for a little bit. You know, my wife was a, was a special agent. So she, um, she was able to, you know, basically help out while we were trying to get stuff up and moving and spinning on it. But, but, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is amazing, especially in today's day and age, because there's just so much opportunity and it's, and it's constant. I, I call it the enigma of business where you're constantly problem solving. Mm -hmm. And it very, very much reminds me of, of working in special forces. That, that's got to be interesting to have that dynamic of your wife also being an agent. I mean, we've had Sam Faddis on, who's former CIA, and he he was in that position where his wife was. Yes, they they even worked together once in a while. Oh, uh, that's cool. Yeah, 
Yeah, so my wife has a similar background in that she left that and then became a special agent out here in Utah because we had reached a point. We started having kids a little bit later in life, and um, so it was like, well, you know, let's let's settle down here in Utah. That's cool, though. But So she understands. You know, she knows the deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So she did, she did two tours in Afghanistan and, um, I'm sorry. I was like, Oh shit. I mean, so she was on a, what were they? The fast teams? Uh, no, no, she was, that, that was back when she was with the agency. So she did two, uh, she did two tours over there. Uh, Okay. Gotcha. And then she, she left, she left that place and, and came over and was a special agent afterwards after we started, essentially spinning down. You know, it's one of those things where my last trip overseas, it, it turned out it was a, it was a really rough trip, probably the most sketchy I'd had out of the, you know, the 13 years over there. And, um, um, when I was leaving my oldest at that time was like two years old or three years old. And he knew that I was leaving again. You know, my wife was dropping me off at the airport because I was always, I mean, I was gone and back, gone and back, gone and back. And, um, um, so he's, he's sitting in his car seat looking down at his feet and I'm like, Hey, Papa's leaving, you know, give me a hug and a kiss. And, and he, he wouldn't look at me. And as a new dad, you know, I was in my forties, you know, when yeah. I, I had my first son and, and as a new dad, when my son wouldn't look at me when I'm getting ready to leave, it was like, man, this, this isn't cool anymore. This yeah. kind of sucks. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, and then I had a I had a really rough trip that that almost went you know fatal and it was coming back it was like man you know what I've done everything I ever dreamed of doing in the military times you know times five you know and so you know I think I I think I'm you know it's one of those things where it's like I think I'm good I think I want to try a new challenge you earned it too try something else. You know, after all those years, I mean, I think you earned the right to have a life and to have a family. Yeah. And and at that point, too, you know, I'm 49 now at the time I was in my mid 40s. You know, I'd I'd blown my ankle. I'd broken my leg. I'd blown my knee. I'd broken my back, you know, (laughs) multiple herniated discs. I ripped my shoulder out on a target. You know, I've fallen off walls and roofs and lost most of hearing in one of my ears. And, you know, it's TBIs and. So it was one of those things where it was like, you know, I just, I don't, I don't get up quite as fast as I used to. <laughs> I don't, and, I don't, and when I fall down, man, it, it's, it just keeps hurting the next day and the next day. So yeah, but, it was definitely one of those times where it was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try something else but out. That's uh, that's cool that you recognized that and you were ready to leave on your own terms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and it was also one of those things, you know, being a dad, it was, man, I want to see my family. I want to, you know, I want to go home at night and, and I want to look at, it's like, well, I want to, I want to try and retire and I'm an inventor. I've got multiple patents and, you know, nothing is better to me, you know, spending time with my family is the best thing. The second best thing is tinkering on some new design mm-hmm. or invention in my shop. And then third is, you know, is writing or, and doing stuff with the ready man. So yeah, tell us how you know Ready Man and the Rat and all that stuff came about. Um, was that all these kind of like the the genesis of you messing around in your garage with things? I mean, how did that, how did all that happen? It, it was like I come from a family of of kind of mechanics and tinkers, and so I guess it's kind of in my DNA. 
And um, so we, we were on a target when I was in Afghanistan. We were on a target. And, um, you know, we were very night biased, so we were always working at night. And so essentially, to kind of set the stage for you, I'd be there'd be three or four uh, American advisors, and we'd have one to 200 Afghans that we would be um, lead training and advising. So we were very small, very, very small elements that were running with these guys. So we'd run them through training during the day. So we'd recruit these guys out of the mountains, run them through a condensed training cycle. And then about, you know, 1400 hours, the target packets would start coming in and we'd say, okay, we'd go in, we'd kick into the, uh, the planning process. And then as soon as it started getting dark, it was like, okay, get your rifles. And we'd go hit targets with these guys. So one night we were, we were going after a target that had, um, some AQ HVTs in it and we got compromised and, um, so the guy started shooting, you know, he had an AK, he started shooting through the, uh, through the gate, hit two of my Afghan commandos in the legs. So we jumped up there and dragged those guys out of line of fire, you know, while we're directing cause the fight's on, you know? And, um, um, so I, I, at one point I looked down at the medics to make sure that these guys were doing okay. So it was Afghan medics working on Afghan commandos and guys that I had all trained me and the other advisors had all trained. And, um, I, I sat there and I, I vividly remember these, these guys having problems with the tourniquet that we were issued at the time. You know, we were wearing gloves and we were wearing MVGs. It was dark, very high stress. You know, we're down in a ditch. Um, and, and it just, it, you know, it was like that snapshot in time. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, went back and got, you know, finished cleaning up the target and, um, you know, and then later on those, those same guys that were wounded were working on a medevac for them. And, um, you know, they were, they were trying to pull the skin had gotten pulled up into the, into the, uh, you know, into the buckles and stuff. And so they, they were Yikes. trying to pull the, the, uh, tourniquets off and, and, um, that it saved their lives. And so, you know, fast forward about three months later, I had rotated back to the States and, um, I'd usually come home, you know, I would do about, uh, 120 days, you know, 90 to 120 days. I'd come home for about 30 days and then I'd go back over. So anyways, I'd, I'd come back home and, um, I was training some air force pararescuemen, some PJs and a very high stress course. They were at the end of the pipeline and a lot of simunitions fire. And, um, and we were inducing casualties, right? And so I was standing up on the catwalk and we're like, hey, put a tourniquet on that man's leg, put a tourniquet on that guy's arm. And uh, I was sitting up on the catwalk looking down at these PJs and they were having the same problems that my Afghans were having. What, what type of tourniquets were these? The, the cat tourniquet at the time? It, it was the one we were issued. I don't, I don't like to point fingers at anybody. There was, you know, we were issued three or four at the time and, and, um, you know, I, I try not to point fingers. And so, and, and I just looked down and I saw these, uh, PJ struggling, um, wearing gloves, wearing MVGs, high stress in the same way, struggling the same way that my Afghans had. And so at that point it was like, man, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, this isn't a training issue. This is a design issue. And so that's when I started down the path of like, man, is there anything else? I looked and couldn't find anything. And, you know, and then one night I was, I was watching a uh, TV show of a, of a little kid wrapping a rubber band around her finger and the finger progressively turned blue. And so that was a, that was that epiphanal moment where it was like, wait a minute, why can't I make up the width of a tourniquet with 
with circumferential wraps and why can't I use elastic? And so I went back and I found, you know, a little while later, you know, the internet was really slow back then still. And what, what, um, year, what year was this, Jeff? Uh, this was like Oh seven. Okay. okay. Um, Oh six, Oh seven. And, um, and so, you know, there was just limited that, you know, there's a ton of information on the net. Now it was limited back then and stuff was slow. And, uh, anyways, I found a paper that was written by two surgeons and from World War II, and they advocated surgical tubing for, for tourniquets, surgical tubing wrapped multiple times. And so I was like, well, okay, there's, there's, some, there's some evidence there. And then I found a Canadian study that the Canadians had done where they had tested a variety of tourniquets. Um, this, and, and the Canadian, the Canadian study was pre-CAT and pre-soft T tourniquet. And so those were not tested in the study. And and they and they had wrapped. They had found that surgical tubing wrapped multiple times was the best tourniquet that they they had. And so it was like that moment where I was like, okay, Eureka! All I have to do is figure out a way to start the tourniquet easier because they had complained it was hard to start the surgical tubing mm-hmm. and it was hard to finish hard it. Hard to tie so, it off. What's that? I imagine it would be hard to tie off, especially it, it, in the field environment. It was it was hard to tie off. It was you couldn't really do it one handed, and so. Oh, um, so I started working and because I'd been a scuba guy, I, uh, I, so the cleat that I use now is the, you know, the metal portion is like a boat cleat. So it's a combination of a boat cleat and a red devil. So an explosive breaching, you use a little plastic piece. It's called the red devil to t- tie into your breaching charge. And, uh, so it's kind of a, it's a combination. The inspiration was those two things meshed together. And then the, uh, the trucker's hitch, the loop on the end that gives you the mechanical advantage, you know, was, is a knot that geez, we used like all the time in the military time and tying stuff down. And so boom, after that it was born. And, and so we tested it and, uh, we were doing a lot of trauma training at the time and, um, tested it out there and we were stopping arterial bleeds and moving the patient before, um, other teams had even begun move, uh, turning the windlass. And so that's where it's like, okay, I really got something here. This is pretty cool. And so then, so I didn't run into, you know, conflicts and stuff. I licensed it out to a, uh, a defense contractor mm-hmm. and then brought that back after I, you know, stopped going overseas. So did, uh, I mean, did this tourniquet start getting used in a field environment? I mean, was, was this something that you were able to give to, you know, Afghan commandos or whoever else to, to start using? Yeah, so the uh, so the the company that the, the company that had licensed it from me, they don't exist anymore, but uh, was Blackheart International, and we sent you know they sent thousands of these things overseas to the um, to the Iraqis because mm-hmm. you know back then it was you know Iraq was going hard and heavy as well as uh, to um, to Afghanistan to the different indig programs that were going on over there, and I, I imagine these things must have seen action in the field, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we'd hear, we'd hear reports. I mean, you can't, it's trying to get info back from overseas, especially when you're dealing with, you know, Afghans and Iraqis trying to get info back was, you know, it's always trial and tribulation. Right. And so, but we definitely hear where it's like, Hey, they used your tourniquet on a guy and, and it worked and, you know, and the guy's alive. And, and so we'd get reports like that back, but it wasn't, it wasn't until I released it domestically that, uh, you know, we started getting, you know, people would actually call us and say, Hey, I just used a tourniquet to save my life. 
That's really cool. That, I mean, that's got to be gratifying. Uh, how did how did that come about? Then when the when Blackheart their license expires, you take back control of of your invention, and then you you started marketing it domestically. Yeah, so it was about that time I was I wasn't going overseas anymore, and that's you know Ready Man was spinning up at that mm-hmm. time, and Rats had been kind of going a little bit, you know, and that was part of the reinvention of oneself where it was learning social media. So going from a life of anonymity to, you know, essentially getting on social media to, you know, because social media is such a huge marketing tool that's available. And, um, and so getting, you know, getting on there and, and it started going out to folks at that time, like tourniquets, tourniquets are brand new in the domestic market. I mean, we're only talking, you know, the last five, six years, five years, I mean, five, five years ago, people were still saying, don't use tourniquets. You're going to use the limb. It's a thing of last resort. And that's kind of like what Jack had mentioned is like the tactics and the change and in special operations up to now, like back in the nineties, um, the, you know, the trauma, if you came upon somebody in trauma, then the, the protocol was two large bore IVs, bolus the bags, which means squeeze the bags, get as much fluid into them as possible. And then tourniquet is of last resort. Now fast forward. And it's like, there's no fluid resuscitation that's done. I mean, it's only medication that's done, but, right. but like lactated ringers or sodium, none of that gets dumped at the people anymore because I mean, because it doesn't work. And then, and then tourniquets are the first resort. So we've seen, we've seen a, a complete reversal of what stuff had been. So that was a big change, you know, in the, uh, in the medicine at least, as well as, you know, some of the tactics from overseas. I, Jack, I don't know when you got in, but you remember like, pre-war all the time we would spend learning how to do ivs it was you know do an iv then when you got good at it do an iv in a car when it's moving when it didn't get good at that then do ivs at night and then do ivs you know with nvgs and and uh, just a ton of time spent learning how to do ivs but i came in uh in 2002 so the war was popping off 2003 going through rip so that was kind of my introduction to, you know, what, what did we call it at that time? Ranger first responder, I think, RFR. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, there's definitely quite a bit of focus on uh, putting in a saline lock. Um, and I, I think they were probably coming to grips at that time with what you were describing that, you know, we're putting in a saline lock in case the, the veins and arteries collapse so we can introduce um, pharmaceuticals and so on if needed. Um, but you're right that there was that this attitude about, pumping the lactated ringer as if that's going to replace blood loss, which, you know, of course we all know that it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thought was, is, you know, you're, you're preventing hypo. The idea was, we know this is wrong now, but you're preventing hypovolemic shock because you're keeping the volume up in the body. Mm-hmm. So the heart can keep pumping. And, and it was actually, I believe it was so calm. I got to find the study that they figured it out doing tissue labs that, that, uh, doing the fluid resuscitation was, was not doing anybody any favors and to let the body, you know, let the body kind of keep do what it needs to do to, to survive. And that slowing down the heart rate actually isn't a bad thing and letting the, letting the wound clot up rather than just right. flushing it with right. LRs, you know? And, and then, I mean, I think the law enforcement community has had the same like institutional rigidity <laughs> or, or lack of, lack of wanting to accept the research. 
Well, yeah, and that you know, in law enforcement now, I mean, God bless them. They they were they've been a little bit behind, but um, you know, around. now there's enough military guys have gotten out, have become cops. You know, there's great programs that mm-hmm. are out that are advocating tourniquets now, and I, I saw somewhere that they think in the last you know half decade that um, police have started using tourniquets. They've saved something like Thank thirty thousand lives. That's amazing. Um, just you know, because the number the number one preventable cause of death on the battlefield and in the civilian world is is massive hemorrhage, is bleeding to death. So preventable cause of death, and so tourniquets definitely save lives. And, you know, in the military, did a study, ten year study, not one instance of limb loss due to a due to a tourniquet or any of that stuff. And so they're they're definitely life saving devices. And so when I get the phone calls from people, and it, and it's like some of the most bizarre stuff you would ever think. But when I get calls or emails from people that say, Hey, I just use your tourniquet to save somebody's life. Or, you know, I used your tourniquet to save my own life. It's unbelievably humbling. I mean, it really, it's one of those moments where it's like, okay, it's all worth it. I mean, this person is alive. I just talked to a guy two days ago that he has a condition and he, um, unexpectedly passes out. He was doing the dishes and, uh, passed out, woke up, and he was spraying blood all over the counters and, um, he had run a steak knife through his arm when he fell down, sliced the artery. And he just so happened to have my tourniquet on him and he, he threw it on and wrapped it over. And so he, on his, you know, as his right arm was when he got stabbed and he's right-handed. So wrapped it on there and he called me to thank me. He's like, your tourniquet saved my life, man. I was like, no, you saved your life. You were just using a tool. So that's stuff awesome. like that is like, man, it, it, that's very cool. Well, not to poke the bear too much, but um, I do know there there has been some controversy around these tourniquets also. And I, I don't know if you want to get into that or talk about it too much. Um, but I, I know there's, you know, some drama out there. Yeah, I think I think any time you buck the paradigm, you know, you're you're going to have people that that are, are going to fight you. And, and, um, and, you know, and we see that in, I mean, you see that in, in anything, do you know what I mean? And, and it's, I mean, they, they, back in the day they fought the, uh, you know, they fought the automobile coming out because, you know, they were, (laughs) the the thought was they're never going to be able to replace horses. Well, I mean, look where that all turned. And so I think anytime you've got a new device and also because mine is so different from the, you know, what the what the paradigm dictates a tourniquet should look like that, um, for some folks, it's just, it's like, no, they don't, they don't want to change. They don't want to, they don't want to listen. And that's okay. And that's fine. I mean, the thing that I steadfastly tell people is, look, there's a lot of great tourniquets out on the market now. It's like, find one, learn how to use them all. If you're an instructor, teach them all because you never know what you're going to run into out there. But then, and the, but then have one with you, have it in your, have your med kit and know how to use it. And it doesn't matter if it's mine, it can be, you know, there's umpteen number of other great tourniquets that are out there. Have one of those because tourniquets save lives. And so, you know, we're big supporters. We support organizations that, that actually don't even teach our tourniquet. And it's like, you know what, my mission is to try and get the word out and help as many people as possible. So that's what I'm concerned about. Well, you know, uh, God forgive me for saying this as a former 18 Bravo. Uh, but 
the reality too is that I mean, in the in the gun world, the the as a, I'm a Second Amendment supporter as well, and and I enjoy shooting guns. But I mean, in the tactical community, as it were, I mean, there's a lot of weird cats out there too. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're an eclectic group of people, to be polite about it. And uh, you know, there are we're, as you I think you point out a little bit, we're set in our ways, and there are guns that come around that say are better than the M4 rifle. But we don't necessarily want to use them because it's not what we're used to. Yeah, and and that's kind of like me as an inventor. I'm you know I'm an inventor, and then I'm firmly in the survival, you know, emergency preparedness space, which by you know by nature means I question everything, right? right and right. and then when I'm working with, you know, haven't been in the CT unit working with uh, Indige, you know, for 13 years. And it's like me and a few other dudes, you've got to get pretty creative to try and solve some of the solutions for problems because you don't always get what you want. And so it's like, okay, how can I make this thing work for different stuff? And so, and, and that's where, so for me, I'm known as the AK guy over there because I carried an AK, you know, I, I could have carried whatever I wanted in that unit, but but I carried an AK for my entire time and used that and fell in love with it. And it just so happened in 2002, I was part of the SOCOM study that was spun up to disprove the AK, but it ended up proving the AK because at that time, the SR-47, which was an M4 variant that would shoot the uh, 7.62-39. Yeah, they only made um, a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. I'm the guy that killed that program. And really? So, yeah. Well, wasn't the concept behind it? This is really interesting. It wasn't the concept behind it that we were perhaps going to be clearing cave complexes in Afghanistan and going in so deep that we may need to pick up the enemy's ammunition and use it in our weapon. It, it was. And, and so the, the whole story is there had been testing that was done on the SR-47. I was not on the SR-47 testing. However, I'm very good friends with the guys that were on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, the rifle was not working. It was, I mean, barrels were falling off. It was, it, the rifle was just, it was not working. And they, so they wrote up a, a very scathing review on it. And so, um, the guys that were in charge of the program went to the colonel that was, you know, basically signing the checks for research and development and said, Hey, we need more money to continue developing this rifle. The 76239 burns really hot. And so you've got a it's it's one of those enigmas that folks are constantly trying to figure out. Frank Plum up in uh, Washington State actually kind of figured it out with his with his rifle that he designed up there. It's a it's a, a version of it's kind of like a scar, only a little bit different, and it shoots the seven six two thirty nine. And so it burns very hot. So what happened was they were they were going through this process trying to trying to figure this thing out. The colonel said, "Well, why don't we just use AKs?" If you're talking about battlefield recovery, why don't we just use AKs? Exactly. And so, and 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 mind you, the SR-47 was five thousand dollars a copy at that time, and so, and plus all this time for TNA and all of that stuff. And so, you know, he the colonel got this got the answer of like, well, AKs they're not accurate, and they you know they have horrible ergonomics, and you know they get too hot, and and so the colonel w- said, okay. Show me the show me the studies. Show me the studies that that say what you're saying. So these guys scoured and could not find any empirical data <laughs> on, the, on the AK. And so, 
he was like, I'm not signing one more cent over until you guys get me some data that shows that the AK isn't up to snuff and that we need to continue developing SR-47. So in steps Jeff and then another guy that was from Ranger Battalion, Craig, and uh, he was an E-7 out of uh, Ranger Battalion. And um, so we started shooting. It was three or four days. Is I'd have to go back and look at my notes, and we and the test was set up to fail. So the rifles that we got were filthy. They looked like they'd been pulled out of a dumpster. They were Chicom 56s with folding stocks. We were testing reliability and accuracy at the same time, which anybody listening knows you would never do that. So we weren't cleaning out the lands and grooves or anything. I mean, and we were and we were also testing the feasibility of the SOP mod kit on the rifle at the time too. Well, there at that time there were no rails for AKs. And so we were like the crane, the guys that were out there running the study from crane had kind of like spot welded some rails on the their covers and stuff and since we weren't cleaning it we just zip tied them down tight <laughs> that's so, awesome so by the end of the second day and we had a cw5 that was validating the test and um and at that time and jack will know this there were like five cw5s in the entire force cw5s were brand new and they were like on the same level as a general officer and so we had a CW5 that was a Vietnam vet that was that was validating the testing. We we were tracking where every single round that we shot where it went. And um, throughout the process, we essentially disproved the in all of the accuracy stuff. It was like, no, these these rifles are actually very accurate. You just have to zero them correctly. But they, these are actually very accurate. The ergonomics, if you look at the rifle in its totality, it's actually very ergonomic. Um, yeah, it is. And, and I mean, it's because it, and it's designed. You as a Bravo understand this. It's designed that you can hand that rifle to a conscript who doesn't know anything, but they could still keep up with who they thought they were going to have to fight. The United States military, with their experience having been, they had just fought the Waffen SS on the Eastern Front, which was the finest mechanized infantry the world had ever seen at that time. And so they were like lessons of war from the past. How do we get these peasants and make them so that they can keep up with what we expect the Americans are going to be like? And so I'm a, I'm actually, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the AK and, um, um, and it's just, it's, it's brilliance in design and, um, and just so many, so many different myths about it that, um, you know, it's always fun for, I could talk for ages yeah. about AKs, but, uh, no, I but love you, it. so that's where that, that's where that came from. And, Consequently, because I'm known as the AK guy, I had written a blog article that was called "The AR The AR Platform Sucks for Preppers," <laughs> and and um, and you would have thought that I had like <laughs> I had like burned the church to the ground, you know. Was like I got so much hate mail from that, and I, and I was like, "Look, you guys, I said an AR platform sucks for preppers," you know, because I was I was looking at the prepper market, but. Whenever I write articles, what, what I'm trying to do is get people to think. It's like, look, don't don't just pick up something because the military said it's good enough right. or it's good it's good enough for the military, so I've got it. It's like, well, you're a civilian. It may not be good enough for you. So let's we're you know, going back into that I'm an SF guy where it's like I question everything. And it's like, well, is it is it the is it the point? And but yeah, of course that was one of those things uh, that I'll go as up. far as to say that Kalashnikov is 
my favorite rifle, probably the best rifle out there. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's the best. Depends how we're going to measure that, of course. There are better rifles out there for, you know, like a special mission unit to use for counterterrorism operations and things like that. But if you can only choose one, and especially for UW, uh, unconventional warfare missions, where you're not going to find, you know, 6.5 or whatever wazoo exotic caliber of ammunition, you're not going to find it out in the battle space for, you know, battlefield recovery. I mean, I think the Kalashnikov is where it's at to this day. Well, and and that's I, I agree with you, and that and that's why I mean, there's there's bullets and guns like all over. I forget how many millions of those things that have been produced, and and for me too, working with Indige Force, it was it was a it was a confidence in equipment, mm-hmm. right? And so I had to be able to get down there when I was teaching these guys how to shoot and all that. I had to be able to manipulate it better than they could. I had to be able to shoot more accurately than they could. So that because you're constantly in 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 special forces and Jack knows this, but you're constantly winning rapport and maintaining rapport and relationships of trust because trust is everything when you're talking to these guys. Yeah. And and trying to get them to do I mean, you're trying to talk these guys into risking their lives for you. And so rapport is like really important and running around with a match grade stoner rifle and being able to outshoot them. You're not, you're not impressing. Right. Right. But, but getting an AK, the same one that came out of their arms room and then going out onto the, going out on the range and, and out shooting them that now all of a sudden you've, you've built rapport. We're like, okay, I'll listen to this guy. Cause he knows what he's talking about. Uh, yeah, I can see though. You know, telling uh, a bunch of gun bros that their M4 sucks that that can ruffle some feathers. <laughs> I can see that. It did. It did. And and it's like and at the bottom we cited, you know, three or four studies from the Marines that you know, like on the periphery agreed with what I was saying. But again, it was it was like, look, if you're if you're a survivalist or you're into survival or something, and you live in you know, if you live out here in Utah, you know, a five, five, six, it, that may not be the best choice for you. You may, you, you probably need to step it up to a seven, six, two by 51 at mm-hmm. least. So you can reach out and, you know, touch some stuff or, you know, I, it was, there was some great discussion that took place intermixed with all of the stuff where it sounded like I'd called somebody's mom or prostitute, but I mean, <laughs> but, uh, but there was, you know, one guy made a fantastic argument for 12 gauge shotgun and just the versatility and, and all of that. And that was the whole point of that, of that article was, Hey, let's think, let's question, let's, is it, is it really the best thing for you guys to use? And if it is, why? And so, so, so beyond that article, you've also written quite a few fiction books, as I said, in series The the latest one out now is the last air force one. Uh, and your co-writer on that, along with a lot of stuff, is Jason Ross. How did you get into the field of uh, writing military thrillers? So, so Jason is—he's uh, my business partner with on Ready Man, and um, he, you know, we were sitting around uh, one night talking, and I mean, this was years ago, a few four years ago, three years ago, and uh, we were sitting around talking, you know, and like all good discussions, it was over some good bourbon, and um, he had asked, he was like, hey. You know, he'd never been in the military. He's never, never been a uh, in law enforcement, but he's a very accomplished outdoorsman. And um, he said, "Hey, how do you think the world? How do you think the world could stumble? How do you think you know we could run into problems?" And um, 
so, you know, of course I was like, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I think it could happen. And, um, um, and so we started having this, what if discussion and, and it was, well, if this happened, what do you think would happen from there? And if this happened, what do you think from there? And, and it, at some point I had, I had actually started writing, um, a fiction novel when I was, um, in Afghanistan and it was, it was, you know, it's got monsters and stuff in it. And of course it's about a special forces guy that all the a sudden finds out that monsters are real and he becomes a bounty hunter for, for monsters. Well, I had started writing that because it was, you know, it was essentially catharsis while I was, I'd come back from assault and you're, and you're spun up. And, um, so it's like, you know, I, I, you can't drink, you know, you can only work out so much. It was about three o'clock in the morning, so you couldn't really go run. And so it was like, oh, how do I, how do I, uh, depressurize? from, you know, from just coming off these assaults. And so I, I, at one point, my brother had mentioned to me about a Vietnam vet that I think he wrote the Jack Reaper series about this guy had been in Vietnam and he had started writing as a way to kind of off gas to pressure down. And so I was like, well, I'll try it. And, and I fell in love with it. I mean, because you just, you just create your own world and you get lost in the I'm a very visual kind of guy. Like when I'm inventing something, I can do CAD in my head and spin it around and look at it and stuff. And so when I started writing this book, it was, it was like unbelievably therapeutic in that it was, I could just get lost in this world of my own making. And then, um, and then, you know, I'd get tired and then I'd go to bed. So I gave that, uh, I gave that manuscript, that book hasn't been published yet. And, um, you know, and I gave it to my business partner, Jason, and I said, "Hey, read this." And he was like, "Man, we could, we could write a novel about the end of the world, about all this stuff we've been talking about." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right. We should do that." And so we started hammering it out. So that's Black Autumn, and uh, Black Autumn is a big wargaming exercise. That's it. So it was, you know, it was the initial intel of the battlefield of what we think would, ha- how we thought the world could stumble, what would happen here in the United States, as well as you know, here in Utah, how we would react to it. And it was this big wargaming exercise that we went through and we had so much fun doing it. Um, we were like, well, let's, let's, uh, let's get this published. We went to the publisher and they were, and they said, you guys have got way too much in your book. You've got to chop out <laughs> about a third of it. And so we were like, okay, so we chopped out a third of the book and, uh, that became black autumn travelers that's for sale. So it's about it's about three of the characters that are trying to get back to Utah and it, and it fills in some of the gaps of what we think would be happening in the rest of the United States. And then we got so many people that were saying, man, it'd be really cool to get more idea of what's going on in the world. And so we wrote, um, black autumn, the last air force one. And so that's essentially the president of the United States is an air force one. And he's basically flying around the United States because there's nowhere safe for him to land and he's getting all these intel reports as the you know as the country starts to to come apart at the seams and we're actually and so those are all companion novels we're actually in the middle of writing two more companion novels um black autumn conquistadors um which is about the cartel and what we think would happen with them as well as uh black autumn gunslingers where it's about an, an individual that helps uh, tie a bunch of this stuff together. And then the sequel to black autumn, which is white wasteland is, is actually in the editing process right now. So, um, it's awesome. So yeah. you spun it off into a whole uh, series. 
Yeah, we have. And then we actually, with a, with a ready man crew, we actually opened it up to, um, to some of the other folks that are, you know, that are following ready man. And it's like, Hey, do you want to write about the black autumn universe? And so we're using this, you know, it's mostly Jason, but we're big on helping, you know, veterans or, or anybody that wants to start off on entrepreneurial efforts. And it's like, Hey, if you want to write, then, then we'll help you and we'll help you with the editing process. We'll help you with the idea. And here you can write about the black autumn, you know, write about the black autumn universe. And that kind of gives you the, the foundation that you can then fill in the gaps of what you're doing for your own personal story. And so we're, we're pushing that right now to, you know, essentially it's helping, helping out other young budding authors. We've got about four of them now that are, that are veterans that are jumping in there and, and, and writing stuff. So it's really, it's really cool. That's awesome, man. It's a, that's a dream come true, really. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work. Writing a book is no small, you know, no small effort. And, you know, and I applaud Jason, you know, he's the, he's the engine behind it. That's constantly, he's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta write, you gotta edit, you gotta write, you gotta edit. Cause I've got about a billion <laughs> things going on. And so, but, um, it, but it, it's, it is, it is, it's a blast. And, um, and again, it's just that from the, from the day to day stress of business and work and job and, social media, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to escape into the black autumn world for a little while. And then, uh, you know, you come back out of it and you're like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot better. No, that's really cool that you have that outlet. And I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think, uh, it's true for, it's definitely true of veterans, um, and people who live in that, they're in that headspace of, you know, war and combat all the time and trying to reconcile those things when they come home. But I'm sure it's also true for a lot of people experiencing just the day to day stress and, you know, all the consternation you hear about social media and, you know, 24 hour news cycle. Like there, there has to be some kind of a hobby or some kind of place where you can just kind of step aside from all of that, even if it's just for a few hours. Absolutely. Totally. Totally agree with you. And it doesn't have to be fiction. I mean, fiction's an, an escape, but, you know, I wrote the uh, 14th edition for uh, Stackpole's Combat Field Leader's Guide. That was that was a lot of fun because it, it just really had gave this purpose of going through and studying and finding the latest and greatest with the knowledge that, you know, young, young NCOs and officers were going to be reading this and looking at it as a means for, you know, how they were going to trade lead and train their soldiers. And then, um, and then also like my, the one that I'd written on the uh, small unit leaders planning guide, which is essentially a checklist on how to do warning order operations order and frago. And then the coordination checklist that goes along with that. And, and, um, you know, it was just, it was, I think that was actually the first one. That was the first one. The small unit leaders planning guide was the, uh, first one that I'd written. And then the combat field leaders guide was the second one that I'd written, but, but it was definitely, it was, it served as a, okay, I've got, I've got this purpose. And I think so many veterans now I, I get, I get a, bunch of a bunch of vets and even some civilians now that they come by my office and and they're like hey you know i've heard that you had a lot of experience in combat and you you seem like you're really well adjusted can i talk talk to you about some issues that i'm having and so i take time you know probably two three times a month and um with vets and civilians and you know when they come in and they they were like hey i just want to talk to you and pick your brain and 
And I think it's this purpose, you know, as a veteran, it's really easy to lose purpose. And and what I mean by that is we come from a culture of, of constant improvement and constant mentoring, constantly being mentored and constantly mentoring somebody below us. And we, and it's, we're, we're always looking for improvement and limiting the waste. You know, it's this constant improvement and, um, whether that's your PT score or correspondence courses or whatever that is where you're, you're going through and you've got this job, you know, the mission of what you've got to work for. And I think, and then you get out of the military and you're like essentially in free fall and nobody cares and nobody's, <laughs> nobody's going to mentor you. Nobody's going to take the time and you go and you talk to somebody It's like, yeah, I led, you know, X number of people that was worth a million dollars. And most employers you're speaking Greek to them and they're like, yeah, that's great. So how are you going to make me money? And so, and so I think writing is one of those things that just really, you know, instills a sense of purpose, you know, a goal. It doesn't, and I tell guys, I'm like, it doesn't matter if you ever get published. I mean, we live in an amazing time now. I mean, you can go to Amazon right, and, right. and get published now, but, um, but I, I tell guys, it's like, look, it doesn't matter if you ever get published. What matters is you're, you're finding purpose. You're getting your mind out of something and you're going for and, and reaching for those goals. Yeah. It's a, it's a project that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, and finishing a book is a tremendous sense of accomplishment as, as well as not only a sense of accomplishment, but, but it's also when you tell people that you've written books, I mean, like my, I'll be the first to admit that my military planning books, if you can't sleep at night and you have insomnia, buy my book because it will put you to sleep. (laughs) Okay. It is, it is chloroform in print unless you're into that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm into that stuff, but if you're not into that stuff, I mean, you, you're probably not going to get past like page one and then you're going to be, you're going to fall asleep. And so, but, but what that does though, is it's just that, you know, it's that driving purpose, but you tell people then it's like, yeah, I've written a book and, and it, people are amazed. They're like, holy cow, you've written a book. And so now you get this, you know, you get a bit of this serotonin dump, you know, with pride and you're like, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I accomplished that. I wrote a book, you know, and it's like your book is like your certificate of graduation from, you know, from Harvard or you know whatever that is. You know. But uh, it's it's tremendous for for getting your mind right. I, I, at least I believe, and obviously I'm biased because I, you know, I'm big <laughs> into writing. But I don't know. It seems to be working for me. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I've uh, I've written five books at this point. Uh, and, uh, no, it's definitely helpful for me. And I mean, our friend, uh, Jim West, we were talking about, he has a, his first book coming out, um, pretty shortly. He was a seventh group warrant officer. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's definitely helpful for a lot of guys out there. That That's very cool. And you know, and it's also too is, you know, when I was, when I was a young special forces guy, one of my team sergeant, or excuse me, my sergeant major was this guy by the name of Pete Bell. And, uh, Pete Bell had been a SOG, uh, guy, which was the, the signal, ob- it, they were the Studies super secret SF guys group. in Vietnam. And, you know, and he was running recon over, and it's just a fascinating story that this guy had. You know, one of his stories is he had been six American, six American SF guys and six Nung uh, mercenaries. They were, they were jumping, they were parachuting in to uh, do a reconnaissance on a, uh, on a uh, company of, of North Vietnamese soldiers. They ended up landing in the middle of a battalion. And so 
him and one other guy, he literally landed on a North Vietnamese soldier's campfire. And um, him and one other guy were the only guys that were ever seen or heard from again Jesus. from that mission. And I told Pete at the time, you know, Sergeant Major Bell, I was like, Pete, you've got to write this stuff down. This is so important. These are lessons that have been learned in blood. Yeah. You've got to pass this information on. And bless his heart, six months later, I had a heart attack and was dead. Mm. And, I, and I remember thinking, what a loss of, of knowledge yeah. that yep. this guy had. Absolutely. Absolutely true. I never mean, know how much time you have and got to get it out there. Yeah. I mean, not to get on, on my high horse or anything. I mean, I know writing a, a book isn't for everybody, but like some of these guys, I mean, they should pass those lessons on. And, uh, you know, when I was a young soldier, like I, I've, I've talked about before, um, have you read the uh, Dalton Fury's book, uh, Kill Bin Laden? I have not. No. Well, I mean, as a young soldier, I would not have known anything about that stuff except that that dude, uh, his name was Tom Greer, who passed away last year. I, I wouldn't know anything about that if he hadn't written a book about it. There's, there's no yeah. other way. No, nobody ever likes, as a ranger, no one ever like sits you down and like gives you a brief on like past operations. Like, this is what we did right. This is what we did wrong. Um, there were some lessons learned from, uh, from Mogadishu that got passed on that were like put into the ranger regiment's DNA, you know, like, like tourniquets, for example, uh, taking mm -hmm. your nods out with you on every operation. But no one really sits down and tells you all of those things like Sergeant Major Pete Bell. Like, I would not know that unless you told me it. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and that's kind of the cool thing of having been in the, you know, in the, in the CT unit was because we, we had a, we had fantastic continuity for the advisors that were going to those different units. And so I worked with the same guys for years and years and years and years. And so we would, you know, once in a while we would get other, you know, uh, JSOC elements or SOCOM elements would, you know, come and get attached to us and they, you know, and they'd bring stuff up and it'd be like, yeah, well, we tried that in 06 and it didn't work because of X, Y, and Z. And they're like, Oh wow. You know, and it's like 10 when they're, when we're talking. And so just having that institutional knowledge and being able to pass it on, I mean, in the end, I think really, I mean, I think in the end it saved lives. And, and that's the cool thing is now is soldiers now come back and they share a ton more information than I think what has happened in the past. You know, the computers and everything that we have now is a tremendous resource for capturing that knowledge. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in soldiers now, especially, you know, special operations soldiers are, are, are way better now than they were back you know, when I was in the, you know, when I was a brand new guy in the eighties, uh, just simply because of the, the sharing of information is it's almost instantaneous. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's phenomenal. It's amazing. So is there anything else, uh, you have coming up, Jeff, that you want to get into before uh, we wrap it up today? You know, we're just continuing to crank on books. We're continuing to grow the ready man crowd. Um, and I'd encourage anybody that's out there, you know, get involved. Like I'm a big believer in service to the community. Um, I think probably one of the most important things that we can do for our own mental health, as well as, uh, the mental health of other folks is, is service is helping, helping other people out, whatever that may be, whether that's, you know, being a foster parent or doing, you know, NGO type work or, you know, we help a variety of different people. And, and you know, on, on the, 
on the very selfish side on my side, I do that because it makes me feel good. And, you know, and then it also, you know, we're doing that because we're, we're helping each other out. And, and I think it's a tremendous resource that a lot of vets that, you know, maybe if they're having times, hard times, figure out a way to help somebody else out. And you'll, you'll find out that like through service, we can, I mean, we help ourselves. You know, I heard for years you get more out of service than, than what you give. And I always thought it was kind of like some touchy feely hippie tree hugger stuff. And then, and then I really started to see it when I was in Afghanistan working with my guys, you know, my commandos. And then, and then since that time in business, uh, working with other entities, you know, having helped out a slew of, of, um, some pretty prominent, um, other veteran businesses that were out there that they were having some issues, but stepping in to help. I'll tell you what, it's just been, it, it, it's phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal. And so that would, that would kind of be my parting words is if you're having a hard time, then find out a way to do service or, I mean, then anybody that's out there can feel free to reach out to me anytime too. If, if I can do anything to help. Uh, that's awesome, Jeff. And, uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime, um, for like the, the Mondo two hour mega conversation about the Kalashnikov. (laughs) I'd love to, I can, I can talk about the AK for, (laughs) for, uh, for hours. Uh, if, if I need to, I just, I find the thing unbelievably intriguing. And every time I take it apart, I learn a a little new nuance about it that I'm like, huh, I never really noticed that before. And, um, it just, I, I yeah, I'm a big fan of it that is. rifle. We, we've probably read the same books about it too. So yeah, I, I'd love to do a show where we just wax poetic about the AK 47 sometime. Love to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. All right. I'm down. P- people would dig that. There's a lot of gear guys in the audience, of course. Um, so as I said, the uh, the latest book is the last Air Force One. But if you go on Amazon, there's a, there's several books. There's others that are up for pre-order. Uh, RatsMedical.com is the website. ReadyMan.com um, for the other stuff. And then uh, on Instagram, Jeff is at Praetorian, P-R-A-E-T-O-R-I-A-N, underscore innovations on Instagram, Praetorian, underscore innovations, and I think that's it, man. I'm I'm glad that we finally did this. And as I said, having a guy of your background and uh, as Jack said, maybe a gear discussion in the near future. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And anything I can do to help you guys out, I mean, just say the word. Great discussion with Jeff. Be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash One Crate, the Pro Crate. And for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our premium crate. These are all available at crateclub.us. And right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available. And we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on it right now. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SoftRep for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, As a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. 
everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last thing I'm going to mention, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Jack, like Alex Hollings, and the many guest writers who pop up as well. Unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events. And it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. And by the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone, on Android, and our homepage is SoftRepRadio.com, where you can see the full archive of shows. As you've heard me mention before, some of those back episodes aren't up on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify, so... If you go to the website, softrepradio.com, it's everything. Other than a very small handful of episodes we took down, but 400-plus episodes all there. Um, and as always, you can keep up with us at Softrep Radio on Twitter, on Instagram. And uh, great having Jeff on. Great discussion. And uh, as I said earlier, very interesting background. Yeah, it's great. We're going to have to do it again. Yep. All right, so once again, follow us at Softrep Radio to keep up with the latest Happy birthday, Jim West. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.